it is good for us to come together. As the psalmist would say 3,000 some years ago, it's good to come to a place like this. And that while this particular building is not sacred itself, it is filled with people who worship a sacred and wonderful God that we are so privileged to serve. I invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. And we'll look at a passage there in chapter 10 just to introduce ourselves to our study. And then we'll be going from there to a number of places throughout God's Word, mostly in the New Testament today. As has been said, we are very blessed with people who are visiting for the first time, or maybe it's been quite some time since you've been with us. And we are very grateful for the fact that you've chosen to be with us and you've chosen to make this a part of your day. And this is the Lord's day, uh, a day we come together to worship him. Before we get into our study, I wanted to say that I, I appreciate so much those of you that asked about uh, a recent trip that we made, just got back a couple days ago, had the pleasure a week ago for the benefit of the members here of being with Jason Cicero, who has had a couple of meetings with us over the last few years and got to see him. Also got to meet a man by the name of Clayton Hayes. And if that name kind of rings a bell, you remember that we had a meeting with Brother Jason, who preaches in Annandale, Virginia, where I was preaching last week on Sunday while I was away for a few days. And uh, I met Clayton and I said, why does your name sound familiar? And it's because we prayed for him when he was trapped in Sudan about three or four months ago with the State Department. And it was like meeting a celebrity, a brother in Christ. And I said, how are things going? He said, they're going well. He said, I may be going to Saudi Arabia next week. I don't know if that's top secret. I just gave that away, but uh, it's out now. Uh, but it was good to be with them. And we've got a couple of more meetings coming up uh, where I'll be out of town over the next uh, few weeks off and on. But there is truly something special about your home congregation. And there's truly something special about being with brethren that you love, whether they be elsewhere or whether they be here back at home. And so I'm glad to be with you, and we appreciate so much the kindness that you continually show to us, but to so many of our brethren who uh, have challenges and difficulties, and we are a family working together. There is something to be said for titles of sermons. Sometimes it's easy to come up with a sermon title. Sometimes you, as the preacher, if you're teaching a Bible class, if you ever preach a sermon or whatever, you come up with a theme where you want to go, and you come up with something that's that's catchy or something that's meaningful or something that is leading or something that is just downright depressing. You cannot be saved. I hope that I don't fall over dead in the next 20 seconds before I get to what is equally important as a title, and that is the subtitle. Because the subtitle, I believe, is important to the title. And that is you cannot be saved without these four things. Now, this is our topic together today, and I've been thinking about this topic for a number of weeks now, and this is a sermon that will in some ways go back to, to basics, first principles. It may also challenge some of you who are already Christians, or perhaps those who may be here this morning that you may believe that you are doing what God has asked you to do, but maybe there's something to reconsider in an era of your life in a time in your life, at a juncture in your life, where you may be thinking about making some sort of productive change going forward. When it comes to the subject of being saved, I think you would agree with me that being saved is more critical than anything 
and everything. It is the most important topic in the world. It is more, in topic, more, more important than the topic of world peace, world hunger, uh, you name it, it is more important. Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 tells us that our physical health, our physical safety pales in comparison to our spiritual health. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's where the real emphasis should lie. It is more important than your family's welfare, whether that be their physical welfare or their emotional welfare or their financial welfare. And so in Luke chapter 14, where Jesus famously talks about counting the cost and knowing what you're going to get yourself into. There he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And speaking of financial security, most of us are concerned about our financial future, and I think there's probably biblical principle for having a healthy concern and making sure that you are prepared to take care of yourself and your family. But that being said, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And so these are all things that tell us of the importance of what really matters in life. As my preacher friend and a, free, a preacher friend of, of many of you that you knew for a number of years, indeed, if you miss heaven, you've missed all that there really is. There is nothing more important than heaven. There is nothing more important than being prepared for the day of the reckoning when we stand before our God. And you cannot be saved unless certain conditions are met. Now, I can make a list of an additional four or five things in addition to the four that we're going to list today. We're not talking about God's grace because you cannot be saved without his grace. We're not talking about his mercy because you cannot be saved without his mercy. And there's been a number of sermons that have been presented over the last uh, four to eight weeks that have dealt with that particular subject. But I want to talk about things that are responsibilities for us, where the onus is on us in order to do what God has asked us to do. And I want to to start with this, and that is a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And I chose the word genuine purposefully in that this is not just a mere belief in God. I made mention of this in a sermon, I think a few weeks ago, and I've been mentioning this in a couple different places where I preached, but let me just reiterate it again by, to, to illustrate it this way. We never ask someone before they are baptized, do you believe in God? I've never heard that question asked prior to someone becoming a Christian. It's necessary to believe in God, don't get me wrong. But we ask the question, do you believe that Jesus is God? Or do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Some variation of that. And so I want to look at these six passages and spend just a few seconds on each of these passages. And they are written in and out of order for a purpose. But I want to go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And you know as good Bible students or those of you that may be new to the Bible may not be aware that John is a slightly different author of the gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to take a, an overall view of his life on earth. And then, of course, they uh, have an epilogue where they talk about his ascension. And then John goes to the beginning and he starts by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. And I would suggest to you that even though we don't necessarily ask, do you believe that John 1 verses 1 through 5 uh, is a real uh, valuable text? When a person is baptized, we're asking that particular question. Because in verse 3, it says, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Turn over just two or three pages in your Bibles to chapter 5 and verse 24, which incidentally is a good uh, passage to either memorize or to have at, a, at your disposal when you're talking with someone who may not believe in the importance of genuine faith. Faith in Jesus Christ is essential. Most assuredly, I say, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I'm telling you right now, Jesus would say, the hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. And then verse 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this. The hour is coming which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. By the way, that word all there means all. It means everyone who has died is going to hear the voice. There will be on the day of judgment no such thing as an atheist. Everyone will believe in the Lord on that day. Verse 29, they'll come forth, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And this is, of course, telling us of the importance of real belief and faith in Jesus the Christ. We won't take the time to read the next 11 verses in John chapter 6, verses 41 through 51. But there in verse 45, therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. You and I have to have a healthy working knowledge, not only to be baptized in order to be saved, but we must work on that belief and that faith going forward. It would be nice that we come out of the waters of baptism with all of a sudden just new knowledge granted to us in some miraculous form, but that's not the way it works. And even those of you who are here this morning who've been saints for 30 or 40 or 50 years would be the first to testify, I'm still working on it. I'm still working on my belief and on my faith and on my knowledge. In Hebrews chapter 11 and in verse 6, a verse that is uh, very familiar to anyone who's a student of the book of Hebrews, it says, without faith, and that's of course faith that Jesus is the Christ, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you back up into the account of the history of the Christians in the earliest part of uh, our brotherhood back in Acts chapter 8 and verse 36, you recall there that they went down the road. This is Philip, the teacher, the evangelist, and the Ethiopian eunuch, the student. And the statement was by the eunuch, here is water what keeps me or what hinders me or what prevents me from being baptized? And he says, if you do one thing, if you believe with all your heart, by the way, that's the idea of the genuine faith. 
It's not just, yeah, I think I believe. No, it is I believe. I may not have all the answers, and I still have a lot of room for personal spiritual growth, but I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And similarly, just five or six pages over in your Bibles in chapter 16, in verse 30, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The question being posed by the prison keeper, by the guard, and the very first words out of the mouth of Paul and or Silas in verse 31 is, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Let me go a little bit further here and now say something that may be a little bit more challenging. I would say that 85, maybe 90, 95% of what I have said is not controversial at all to those of us who are Christians or at least are thinking about becoming Christians. But I want you to know that faith in Jesus Christ cannot be private. And there are certain people that I think of, not in this particular uh, assembly, maybe not even in this particular state, but there uh, are individuals that I've run across over my years, who say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I want to keep that kind of private. My faith is a very private thing. You know, religion and politics, the two things we don't talk about, but one of those we definitely need to talk about. The other one can be debatable uh, in more than one way. Uh, But religion is something to talk about. And yeah, it's uncomfortable because sometimes it puts people in a position where they're talking about things that are going to be contrary to the beliefs that you grew up with or to the things that are truthful as outlined in God's word. And so we can go through all kinds of passages to to teach this particular point, but a person cannot say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want anybody else to know about that. I believe that he is the Christ, but I don't want to make a scene about that. The New Testament, the book of Acts, notwithstanding, is filled with individuals who, in the New Testament terms of the Holy Spirit, turned the world upside down because their faith was so public and because it was so bold. And so just look at a couple of passages here very quickly here. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 12, it says, we endure, we also reign with him, and if we deny him, he will also deny us. In Matthew chapter 10, similarly, the idea is outlined by Jesus himself who says, if you profess me before men, then I'm going to be your champion and your cheerleader. However, if you try to keep me private, then that's not going to work. And in Matthew 16, verse 16, this is, of course, the very famous, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. Peter made that statement, and we give Peter a a tough time, sometimes rightly so, but he was bold enough to say, I'm going to be public in my faith. You cannot be saved unless you have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, which brings us to the second thing, and that is real authentic repentance of sin. What is repentance of sin? What does that sorrow look like? Let me suggest to you that this is not a sorrow of being caught. And we won't take the time to read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, which outlines this very well, it seems to me, where Paul says, I'm glad that you were sorry. 
I'm not glad that you were sorry, broadly paraphrasing these five verses, so that you are sad, but so that you realize I've made a mistake and I need to make some sort of correction going forward. That's the authentic nature of repentance. Rather, one must fully and completely and totally turn from sin. And there are so many passages that teach this. And so for those of you that are familiar with the idea of the steps of salvation, we're going to talk about that just a little bit in another slide. Let me just share with you four passages that I think are important. Number one is Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. This is a passage that is well-worn in many of your New Testaments. There were present at that season some who told about the Galileans whose, who, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This is the gospel of Luke chapter 13. And Jesus answered and said, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered these things? And then the famous statement that Jesus will make two times in the span of three verses. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then drop down to verse 5. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In Acts chapter 3, working in the order in which they transpire in the New Testament, we find very early on in one of the sermons that is delivered in chapter 3 where Peter and the others were present, and he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted. There is a connection between conversion and repentance and repentance and conversion. You can't have conversion unless you have repentance. Someone says, I want to be a Christian. That's wonderful. Are you, really, are you, are you willing and ready to change your past? No. Well, you can't be converted then. You've got to change the way that you talk or the way that you acted or even the way that you think. Repent and be converted so that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In Acts chapter 17, we made reference to Acts 16 just a moment or so ago. In verse 30, the text there is a record of Paul standing in Mars Hill uh, in ancient Greece. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, verse 30, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because, verse 31, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And then a verse that you may be very familiar with in Peter's second uh, epistle, where he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some would count slackness, or slow, some versions would say, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This repentance needs to be real and needs to be authentic. Too often in the world today, and sometimes even we are guilty of it as Christians, we feel a sense of remorse for having done wrong because it looks bad and it makes us feel ugly and it embarrasses us in front of someone else. And we think, well, I've repented because I have sensed that unpleasant feeling. Only to disguise that with the sense that we haven't really repented. And that's what real, authentic repentance must involve.
Let me suggest to you thirdly, and this is a point that, again, I think that 80% of us are not going to have any sort of qualms about, and that is baptism for the forgiveness of sin. That baptism is essential to salvation is not a debatable topic among most of us. We understand this particular point. And so we are going to breeze through these six passages very quickly. And if you want to jot them down or if you want these notes, you're welcome to them, of course, at any particular time. But in Matthew chapter 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go into all the world and teach them the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for their mission of sins. In Mark 16, 16, in Mark's account, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. He that does not believe will be condemned. Of course, famously in Acts 2 and verse 38, in response to the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? We have done wrong. The the first response that Peter and the others gave was repent, just like we talked about a few moments ago, and be baptized every one of you for the remission of sins. In Acts chapter 10, you find the uh, great story in the account of a man by the name of Cornelius along with his friends. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they asked for him to stay more days, presumably for the purpose of teaching and grounding them even further. Romans chapter 6, our good brother read for us where it talks about the importance of a newness of life being raised to walk in that newness. And in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 21, the text says, there is an antitype which now saves us. It is baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, these are verses that are likely familiar to you. And in the sense that you are going to have healthy debate with individuals who do not believe in the importance of water baptism, let me suggest to you this, and that is, is there something more to be said on the subject of baptism? So the first part of this slide is not debatable, is not controversial to religious folk like you and me who appreciate the authenticity of the scriptures. But the fact is, you may or you may not be aware that there are three alternative possible reasons for being baptized in today's world. Some individuals are baptized in order to join a denomination. That in order to join this particular sect of Christianity, and I put that in quotes because there's no such thing as sects of Christianity. There is, you are either a Christian or you are not a Christian. And we don't believe in denominationalism as members of the Lord's church, wherein there are uh, a, uh, a variety of 40 different options just within 10 miles from us. But some people will teach, well, you want to be a part of church X or church Y or church Z, you've got to be baptized into this particular denomination. Or some would suggest to please a, a family member or to please a friend. I've known of individuals who have been baptized and they have admitted after the fact, I did it because mom wanted me to. Or I did it because my fiance was a Christian and I knew that unless I were baptized, they were not going to marry me. So that's why I got baptized. And they'll admit that after the fact. Or thirdly, to show others that you've been saved. 
this idea of this outward expression of an inward faith. I had a discussion a, a few weeks back with someone who talked about having been saved, but they wanted to be baptized. And I had to stop for a second and, and calculate. I said, can you repeat that for me? I want to be baptized because I was saved a number of years ago. That's impossible. That is biblically impossible. And I know that that makes me in the minority, religiously speaking, and those are fighting words in religious circles. I know that I'm saying it in front of people who are generally going to be very friendly to me. Maybe I can say it a little bit bolder because of that. But you cannot be saved and then be baptized. You are baptized for the purpose of being saved. And that's as outlined in the previous slide, all those six passages and so many others. Let me get to this key point, and that is this. One baptized for any of these reasons has not been baptized for the forgiveness or the remission of sins. And so someone would say, well, what does a person need to do who is baptized because he thought he was saved? Well, and incidentally, this is not just an academic debate. This is a real-life issue that churches have wrestled with. I know of a church, not in this state, but I have some friends who uh, a church either divided or almost divided on the subject of someone who had been baptized as a child, very young child. And I'm not about to tell you what's too young and too old. Uh, One-year-old, too young. I think we can all agree on that. After that, there can be some debate, although too, too young. I'm not going to go any further because then we got to somewhere draw the line, right? But you get to that age where you have a level of accountability, where you have an understanding and that if you have a healthy brain and you don't have any sort of uh, uh, defect or any sort of issue, you're able to say, I understand right and wrong. I understand Jesus as the Christ. I understand the fact that I'm a sinner. I understand that I need to be a child of God. And I need to make that decision to be baptized. But this person was baptized as a child many years probably before he or she was able. And whether or not the church was going to accept that person into full faith and fellowship. That's a real issue that a real church among our brethren was dealing with just months ago elsewhere in this country. What about someone who says, well, I was baptized when I was uh, three months old, which is a practice in many denominations. I want to join the church that belongs to Christ. I want to be the most loving and supportive as possible. But at some point, there has to come a, a point where we say, but you're not a Christian. I was baptized when I was three months old or when I was a year old. Let me ask you, what did you believe when you were one year old? What sins did you repent of? You cried too much? Didn't share your toys too much? You probably don't know the concept of sharing. Well, I guess the one-year-old knows the concept of sharing. Those of you who are parents of one year old say, yes, they know the concept of sharing very well. You get the point that I'm making? And so we've got to make sure that you are baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That being said, I have known of people and I have taken people down into the water for a subsequent time. Sometimes 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years after they first went down into the water. I have a good friend who admitted that she was baptized because of the beliefs of her of the family that she was marrying into. And then six months went by, a year went by, and she said, I did not do that for the remission of my sins. I did it to please him. I did it to please the family. What's that person need to do? 
person needs to be baptized. And I would even go so far as to say, probably not be baptized again. Now, this is a little bit of opinion here and a little bit of semantics. You get the point that I'm making because the first time they got wet. A year later, six months later, 50 years later, whatever that point would be. So now, the caveat to this, and I remember having a discussion with a, with a friend with whom I have so much respect for a number of years back, is we can't treat baptism as just, well, I'm gonna, I want to do it again. So I don't want, I, well, I mean, I guess if 150 people come forward this morning, we'll, we'll deal with it. But we, it ought not be a situation where we say, well, I want to be baptized just in case. That's not, that's not what baptism is about either. But there may be, and I know of individuals who are here this morning who've gone out into the water more than once because the first time they were too young, they didn't understand, they were doing it for the wrong reasons, they were doing it to please someone else, they did it as an infant, whatever the case may have been. So those are some things to think about and maybe to put into your brain as you have discussions with others who may be having those challenges and having those difficulties as well. Which brings me then to this fourth and the final point, and that is lasting and faithful obedience to the Christ. There is so much that you could say on this particular subject. But we often speak of these five steps of salvation. And don't get me wrong, I grew up learning them and memorizing them, and it was a very healthy exercise because it helps you memorize how to talk to people and understand your own faith and some of the passages. But should there be six or should there be seven or should there be eight? Maybe, maybe there's a hundred of them. You, the point that I'm making is this. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22, Jesus speaks before he teaches more fully about baptism and before it is uh, further developed in the book of Acts. And he says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. To teach someone, you be baptized and everything's gonna be golden going forward and that you're not gonna have any challenges and your life on this earth is going to be splendid is disingenuous or at the very least, maybe an outright lie. Because as is written here in Matthew chapter 10, you're gonna be hated for being a Christian. First Corinthians 15, 58, be thou faithful until death. Revelation chapter two and verse 10, first Corinthians 15, 58, the idea uh, that Paul says, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding. Let me just ask this question and that is, what does this look like? What does being faithful look like? Let me suggest to you three very simple, practical things, and that is this. Number one, faithful and regular attendance with fellow saints. Again, I'm not saying anything that is that controversial to 90% of those who are present. You're here this morning. You'll be here next Lord's Day, Lord willing. You'll be here every Lord's Day until you cannot be here because you are unable to attend. You're here on special occasions or special studies or gospel meetings and Sunday evening uh, worship services as well. The fact is, is one has to note that to appreciate their uh, church membership, there is something to be said for universal and local church membership. Those are terms that are accommodative. Those are terms that you will not find necessarily in Scripture. But you know that in Acts chapter 2 in verse 41 through 47, that when a person is baptized, the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. What church was he adding them to? Was he adding them in the Northfield? Or was he adding them to a church in Alabama or to a church in Virginia? Or he was adding them to his church. 
such that we have brothers and sisters all around the world that we've never met and most likely in this lifetime we'll never meet. We have a big family all around the world. And we have family members who today some of us are going to meet for the first time because this is your first time with this local family as well. So you see how we use those terms in an accommodative style. Let me suggest to you that secondly, that in order to have lasting, faithful obedience, one must have meaningful worship on a regular basis where we come together and sing and we partake of the Lord's Supper. This has been on my mind a little bit because I've been having a discussion with someone who uh, has a different view, not in, again, not in this particular assembly, not even in this state, but trying to establish the fact that if you are not doing the things that are outlined, in the New Testament, for example, the Lord's Supper, for example, uh, coming together on the first day to worship and to sing and to do all the things that we do in spirit and in truth. You cannot be doing the things that God has asked you to do. You cannot say with a straight face, well, I'm pleasing to my God. We're not arguing that you're uh, not a decent person. That's not the argument that we're having. But we are suggesting, based on biblical principle, that you've got to do not just some of what the Lord commands, but thirdly, a dedicated adherence to all of the Lord's commands. And that is one cannot pick and choose. And that's difficult because there are some commands that are really easy for us to follow or those that just come naturally to us. But then you read down into Romans chapter 12 or Romans chapter 15, or you read in passages elsewhere in the Bible where it talks about the more practical side of Christianity. Say, well, I don't want to do that because that's going to really stretch me or that's going to be more difficult for me. I don't want to treat someone that way as outlined in Ephesians chapter four. But of course, we must do all of those things. This lasting, faithful Full obedience to him is necessary in order to be saved. And I'm convinced that unless someone drug you here and, and said, you will come today, no matter what you think, that you're here of your own free will. You're here because you wanted to be. And that tells me that you want to be saved, which brings us then to this question, and that is, am I saved? I hope that you are, and I am not the judge. And I'm glad I'm not the judge. And I think all of us would say we are glad that we are not in that position. But we will stand before the judge one day by adhering to these four things always we can be saved. This is not a study that is meant to be all-inclusive in the sense that I've covered every aspect of Christianity. That would be an awful long sermon with the key on the word awful. Uh, but the fact is, is in 30 or 40 minutes, we've tried to establish some things that will help those of us who are already Christians to be grounded, assist those who are needing to make some sort of correction, and be of influence to those who may be present this morning who need to make some sort of correction in your life, either by refocusing yourself with repentance or being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. You cannot be saved unless these things transpire. But we want to witness your transformation today and be a part of your journey going forward in being what the Lord has asked you to be. And so you can be saved by God's grace in your obedience to him and faith. If we can help you, 
We would love the opportunity. If we can assist you and pray with you, we'd welcome that opportunity. If we can help in any way, let us know. We'll be standing while we sing.